Assalamu alaikum and welcome to this week's edition to Pathway to Peace, a show which takes a look at the current issues and trends affecting us all, trying to find the answers to problems that affect our political peace, economic peace, social peace, and perhaps the noblest of them all, inner peace. World Mental Health Day takes place on the 10th of October each year and was first established in 1992 by the World Federation for Mental Health, which is a global mental health organization with members in more than 150 countries. It's worthy of note that the World Federation for Mental Health was founded in 1948, just a few years after the end of World War II, where there was growing recognition of the importance of mental health. And the organization sought to promote awareness, understanding and action on mental health challenges worldwide. This year, the theme of World Mental Health Day is mental health is a universal human right to improve knowledge, raise awareness and drive actions that promote and protect everyone's mental health as a universal human right. Mental health is a basic human right for all people. Everyone, whoever and wherever they are, has a right to the highest attainable standard of mental health. This includes the right to be protected from mental health risks, the right to available, accessible, acceptable and good quality care, and the right to liberty, independence and inclusion in the community. Good mental health is vital to our overall health and well-being. Yet, according to the World Health Organization, one in eight people globally are living with mental health conditions, which can impact their physical health, their well-being, how they connect with others and their livelihoods. Mental health conditions are also affecting an ever-increasing number of adolescents and young people. Having a mental health condition should never be a reason to deprive a person of their human rights or to exclude them from their decisions about their own health. Yet all over the world, people with mental health conditions continue to experience a wide range of human rights violations. Many are excluded from community life and discriminated against, while many more cannot access the mental health care they need or can only access care that violates their human rights. In this episode of Pathway to Peace, we'll be drawing upon two earlier episodes that looked at this very topic to hear what the experts had to say about diagnosing and looking out for mental health signs. And of course, what practical methods does Islam contain to tackle mental health challenges, emphasizing the importance of mental health well-being and offering tools for individuals to find emotional and psychological balance. Turning to our first clip, you'll hear an interview between Amar Idris and Dr. Musa Sami. Dr. Sami is a clinical research training fellow in the area of general adult psychiatry and is currently undertaking clinical research in the area of cannabis and psychosis. Let's listen to what they had to say with regards to recognizing mental health issues. Uh, to discuss this topic in the next sort of hour or so, uh, Dr. Musa Sami. So, uh, doc, uh, so Dr. Musa Sami, he's a psychiatrist with an interest in serious mental illness and addictive disorders. Uh, he's currently on a training research uh, fellowship at the Institute of Psychiatry, and he's taking a PhD in the area of cannabis and psychosis. Uh, Musa, uh, assalamu alaikum and welcome to the show. Wa alaikum assalam. Thank you very much for having me. Okay. So, uh, Musa, let's start off 
uh, initially with definitions, I suppose. You know, when we discussed doing this show a few days ago, uh, we we were going to actually discuss primarily the the area of mental health, which um, is something that commonly I come across. But during our discussion, you also brought up the idea of mental well-being. Um, and, and that seems to be a slightly more of like a modern term that seems to have come about. So do you, do you want to start maybe by just defining what these two terms are? Oh, okay. I mean, I suppose you could think about it in terms of if you think about your 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 physical health, right? So there's sure. you know there's you know no, there's a concept of physical illness, right? And and I think we're pretty clear about what that is. And there's also a, a concept of physical well-being, um, and that they're, they're, they're separate things. You know, you cannot be physically well in yourself, but you don't necessarily have to have a physical illness, as it were. And I think the same idea, that the same spectrum applies to your mental health. So, you know, if you are, you know, have any concerns with your mental health in terms of sort of if, if you're stressed, if you're a bit depressed, if you're down, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have, are, you know, have a mental illness or, you know, any kind of mental disorder. Um, but it, it could be that you're, you're suffering from, you know, a lack of mental well-being. So, so, but by, I mean, it's not the terms in itself which are important. It's more more important to think about the fact that not everybody else, not everybody who has concerns about how they're doing mentally at the at the moment has an illness. Sure. We shouldn't try and medicalize everything. Um, it's very important that you know we recognise that there are certain med- uh, mental illnesses, which and we can talk about what they are and that we can treat them but also that we attend to our general well-being and where we are in our mental state in any given place and time. Okay, sure. And do you think it's fair to say that when you look at the word mental well-being, it seems to cast a much wider net? Is is that effectively kind of also saying that it's something that almost everyone should be looking to to try and manage, given the stresses that come with modern-day life and so on and so forth? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that, you know, in, in, in sort of modern life, you know, especially in, you know, where we are in the Western world, in the kind of fast-paced life that, that we we attend to and the kind of stresses that, that come with that, be they, you know, at work, at home, in our sort of interpersonal relationships, I think we should all be thinking about our, our mental well-being, as, as indeed we're all advised to thinking about our physical health or our levels of fitness this is also something that we we should be thinking about sure okay so just uh, so thanks for defining those terms for us what i wanted to look at next was to go a little bit back into the history because obviously throughout the kind of Mm. 70s and 80s um there's been an awful lot of stigma that's existed around mental health um do you have a view on kind of why um you know what is it specifically about kind of mental health that that causes a stigma to arise well well yeah i mean that's right stigma has been a very long-standing thing it's it's probably gone on for several centuries rather than just you know a, a few few decades i mean the the idea is of you know people with mental health problems especially people with serious mental health problems as being different or other or you know thinking or feeling differently not being quite like us um so th- this has been around for a very very long time um and you know i mean what one of the the reasons historically for that has, has been that some of the you know illnesses have have been you know severe um, treatments have not always been 
uh, available or have not always been optimal. Um, and, you know, furthermore, I mean, the, there hasn't been the exposure to mental, you know, illness uh, sure. historically in society. So what's happened, you know, is that people used to be shut off in asylums. You wouldn't see about them. You know, this happens in families as well. Sure, sure. Um, you know, so if, if, if somebody has a mental health or mental illness problem, they may themselves withdraw from society or, or being part of society. Um, so th- those have been sort of some, some of the reasons. Um, but there have been other kind of, um, you know, concerns that sort of people who've been working in the mental health field have raised. One is, I think, the role of the media. Okay. So, you know, so, so for example, um, the word psycho is, is not a helpful term, but sometimes, you know, historically, in the recent past, you've seen that sort of emblazoned yeah. on, you know, as, as headlines when... When, when you know for, for disasters, you know sure. um, yeah. when things have, have gone wrong, you know so that that gives the idea that people with mental health problems, whatever the story is actually talking about, you know, are in some some way mad or different or unpredictable. Yeah. Um, and so you know, I, I think there have been some you know criticisms of sort of mental um, health treatment or mental health conceptions, which have in themselves have you know. Had some grounds, so I'm, I'm thinking about you know a very famous film called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah, so, yeah. so very many people will have seen that film. For example, yeah. it talks about psychiatric hospital um, and shows you know very vivid scenes of people having electroconvulsive therapy and and dreading it. Yeah. Um, now, some of the um, criticisms made in that film, for example, of mental health um, services were true and, and hold water. Um, I mean, I won't go into the detail of, of, of what they were, sure. but I think the, the what was left in their kind of public um, consciousness was, was this idea of, you know, psychiatrists giving labels and diagnoses, not knowing what they were doing yeah. and giving people kind of brutal treatment. Um, and that, that obviously, that, that affects the conception there people have had of, of patients with mental health yeah. problems. So, so Musa, do you think also one of the aspects we haven't maybe touched upon yet, and, I, and I've always felt that perhaps this is related to the stigma, is has there been a a bit of a leap, do you feel, in the research that um, that has gone into mental health in, say, the last few decades? Um, could it also have been that primarily things weren't understood very well, say, 40 or 50 years ago, uh, but now researchers are understanding these things a lot better as to what may be causing it? Um yeah I mean so so I think I think we could we could probably say that that's probably uh true so what, what what's happened is say I, I suppose the the you know the original you know psychiatrists you could even say were the, the sort of the arab physicians sure. several hundred years ago right they were written you know beautiful descriptions of mental illness um, and then maybe a hundred years ago, or, or so, or maybe in the last couple of hundred years, yeah, the, you know, Western physicians began documenting the signs of mental illness, and th- that became the basis on which we practice um, today, essentially. Okay. Um, and then, you know, in in the last hundred years, you know, about around a hundred years or so ago, you know, Freudian kind of concepts, or, or you know, psychodynamic yeah. concepts, be- sure, sure. Be- began to. Um, take sort of precedence in terms of our research. So these were not sort of 
brain-based concepts in the sense that they were not looking at the brain as a biological um, entity. They were more looking at, you know, our subconscious, our, you know, uh, unconscious um, experiences and drives and how they may be um, affecting us. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of, of truth in them. But I, I think, you know, there, there were there was some worries about the way, way that was taking the field. And maybe 40 or 50 years ago, when we started um, noting that, you know, medication can really change the course of some uh, mental health problems, there's been a move towards a more kind of um, biological uh, psychiatry or a neuroscientific psychiatry, yeah. um, which is, you know, I think it's taken a long time, but now it's seen as a as, as a neuroscientific discipline okay. more and more. Um, that's not to neglect the fact that these illnesses happen in a particular um, social and interpersonal context, and that I think is is hopefully helping shift people from from thinking that these were um, disorders of one, you know, some kind of existential crisis or disorders of one's own identity or, or some kind of moral problem sure. the understanding that th these are you know medical illnesses that might have biological or chemical processes underlying them and that i think mo most importantly that they're treatable sure and and just for, again for the benefit of our listeners and actually to be honest with you even me when you when mm -hmm. you when you refer to kind of like the freudian uh, methodology that was used at the time to understand mental illness was, was that yeah. effectively kind of looking at was it behavioral studies that they were looking at or analyzing but it wasn't kind of based on uh you know some, like effectively brain scans or like a hard kind of analysis of how the brain reacts to things no yeah, so, so I mean, the, the history of psychiatry is very, very interesting. Or oh, this particular aspect, Freud was originally a neurologist. Sure. Um, and there was a group of, of patients who were um, suffering from what was uh, then called hysteria. So they, they would have sort of, you know, they'd, they'd present with paralysis of, of limb or, you know, other, other kind of neurological problems. Sure. But they wouldn't make any sort of what we would call anatomical sense in in the sense that they didn't have a brain tumor okay. or they didn't have, a, you know, a, any um, particular um, lesion in the, you know, in the neural in the neural pathway, which would account for why they weren't moving their hand. Right. And okay. uh, for example, and, and then, then Freud began to investigate these individuals through initially through mesmerism and other, other methods. Oh, okay. um, and, and he began to realize that uh, underneath many of these concepts, there was some kind of suppressed trauma or there were some kind of, you know, there was some kind of social context which had then manifested Okay. in this way right so this is called a conversion disorder okay. but then you know i mean um so freud then built several theories upon this and and freud and his kind of um disciples um so, some of which would be i think considered quite extreme now um but the, the it was it was it was initially brought about by sort of examining these clinical cases okay it was then, I mean, I suppose, criticized um, most famously by, by a uh, philosopher um, in science called Karl Popper. Okay. He said, look, the problem with the, these um, Freudian theories is that they're essentially unfalsifiable. You know, when, if I was to give a different explanation of, of the phenomena which is going on, uh, somebody like Freud or one of his disciples 
would say that's because you haven't understood properly and come up with a new interpretation. Okay, um, sure. And so I think we, you so know, what, what, is there's it something to, say to that it. Karl Popper was effectively saying that they were unscientific in their approach. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's what he said. He said it's not due to deductive reasoning, and it's not, it's not scientific. Okay. So, um, but I'm, I'm not saying that there's, there's nothing in psychodynamic psychotherapy. Um, yeah. I think it's very useful. It's, it's changed a lot since when Freud was doing it. Okay. Um, but, but I don't think we can neglect the fact that the brain is, a, you know, a biological. Um, entity, we need to think about it like that as well. Okay, no, excellent, thank you. Um, so I think we've maybe answered answered some of this partially anyway. But the mm. the, other, the next bit I wanted to explore was what what do you think uh, is the reasons behind why there's a broader acceptance of mental health? So obviously one of them is the fact that science has moved on, um, uh, you know, a little bit on this. But um, if, I don't know if you were tuned in right at the start of this particular program, but there was a bit around just uh, just on Friday. There was a report in the mm-hmm. on the BBC website, and it's effectively uh, a whole bunch of kind of business leaders, including famous ones like Lord Alan Sugar, etc., writing to the government to say, um, you know, we need to effectively classify mental health in the same way that we classify f- physical health at work. Um, so, and it seems it, to me, it seems like it's clearly a step in the right direction. But the confidence with mm-hmm. which some fairly influential and famous people are coming forward and saying, "Let's classify this in the same way," uh, would suggest that there is now a broader acceptance of mental health, and that you know, in the sense that these people people feel that they are empowered and they can con- confidently come out and say this. Um, do, do you see in your uh, sort of profession kind of why that, that trend might be changing? Yeah, I think that one of the um, well, one of the things is I think that say the Royal College of Psychiatrists, for example, has has done a lot of work on this since the 1980s. Um, you know, particularly with the sort of stigma and campaigns, which have been very, very slow to to get off the ground. But the uh, idea that there was a time for change, or that you know every family in the land may you know have have somebody. Or that they know, or somebody um, within the family uh, suffering from from mental illness, um, and it was a very slow and you know I might say sort of unpopular campaign to start off with. I think you know since maybe the turn of the century, um, within say within Britain at least, we've seen uh, a number of celebrities who have, for example, been very open about their mental health experiences. So, so some of them are you know television personalities and music personalities, you yeah, know, I sure. think that members of the royal family have also talked about it. So, you know, um, well, it's not just the celebrities, there's been, seems to have been some kind of change in the, the tone of, of, say, the newspapers and the media. Um, and, you know, I, I suppose alongside the, the fact that there's been increased focus on this with, with um, some extra research, although it's, it's not enough, there, there does seem to be a, a change in the view that that's taking place. People are, are more open to their kind of mental health problems or, or to discussing them, which is why I think it's important that we started with the you know the difference between mental illness and mental well-being. Yeah. That you know, not everybody who's stressed as a, as a mental illness, yeah, and that's important that we attend to our mental well-being, but we don't give everything a medical label. Sure. Okay. Um... Right, so the next sort of segment that I'd like to move on to, Musa, is just looking at mm. some of the mental health and mental well-being conditions, if you like, that that exist. Now, um, I was on the mentalhealth.org.uk um, 
uh, you know, website which tracks a whole bunch of statistics on on mental health in in the UK. Um, and the four um, conditions, if you like, which were the most um, common, if you like, uh, was first is depression, which according to that is mm. the most common mental health problem worldwide, not just in the UK. Uh, followed by anxiety, which again is quite common. Um, and then also, I was quite surprised by this, but schizophrenia and bipolar disorder were also sort of mentioned within that tone. So, mm-hmm. uh, and again, as a layperson, it, so, it seems to me as if certainly like depression or anxiety or even stress would be things that are fairly common. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think you and I discussed this earlier that maybe schizophrenia and bipolar disorder isn't, you know, isn't as common. But perhaps, you know, it'd be interesting just to take each of those in turn uh, and and just have a you know quick sort of description, I suppose, of what these are. Um, and what sort of treatments there are which can sort of help people to cope with these. So um, perhaps we go through depression first. Okay, okay, yeah. I mean, just as a a general board comment, I suppose the the most important thing to know about all of these conditions is that they are treatable and there are effective treatments that work for them, right? Okay. So... um, uh, so, so depression is, you know, it's a very common um, sort of uh, illness. It's uh, it may occur in sort of up to one in in four of us uh, at some point in our lifetime. So we often say, isn't it, that I'm depressed about this? Or, you know, in, in normal yeah. language, you know, oh, I'm feeling depressed, right? Mm-hmm. But clinical depression, by which I mean that the illness is is kind of feeling of persistent sadness or low mood which you know go goes on for an extensive period of time okay so you know it has to be for you know most of the day nearly every day for two weeks right okay and you you know it has to be um so there are certain symptoms which are particularly associated with it the one is the feeling of low mood and knowing that you're feeling low mood it's not just the feeling of of flatness it's a, it's a feeling that you are are you know not well not right in in yourself and then there's the the, i mean uh, alongside that there's the kind of lack of interest in activities that you would normally take interest in you know so you know um um for example a you know uh, some chap may find himself not interested in in the football or 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 not in the news or you know a mother might find herself more um, let, more withdrawn from her children and, and not taking pleasure or delight in them anymore. Okay. But um, yeah, the, the the thing is that we, I mean, it's very really important to think that we get sad about things and don't get sad about you know how things are at work or you know how things are, mm. um, you know, with, in 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 my relationships with my family. Okay. Um, but you know, there's a normal um, sort of reactivity of mood within within the day which is usual you know and and being sad is also usual and it's a healthy emotion to have sure when it becomes the predominant overriding emotion and that you know you can't lift yourself out of it and it goes on for an extensive period of time yeah then that then that's then that's clinical depression and then there's other symptoms that may or, or may not be associated at the time you know so you may have what are called the biological symptoms of depression, you know, so, uh, for example, changes in your, your sleep pattern, okay. um, changes in your appetite, which may which may go down or may go up, um, changes in individuals' uh, libido, okay. um, early morning wakening. So, so the, these things are the biological features of depression. And then there's 
because what I call the cognitive features of depression, so uh, a feeling of uh, indecisiveness or inability to think, a kind of persistent rumination, thinking about the same thing over and over again, um, a, a lack of concentration and a lack of attention. Sure. Um, and, and then, you know, the, the 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 mood can be very low, can be profoundly low. And some individuals can uh, feel that they, you know, have, have feelings of helplessness or worthlessness. Um, some people may also have suicidal thoughts. Okay. Um, so suicidal thoughts and depression is, is not uncommon. It's, it's relatively common when I see uh, um, patients. Um, and then some people may act out on those suicidal thoughts or they they may in other ways harm themselves, um, sometimes without um, suicidal intentions, but in a way of, of punishing themselves or in a way of uh, relieving or getting relief from the pain. Sure. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, the, the, these kind of symptoms, it, if they're going on, they they really need to be um, looked into and and treated. So, so I guess in some ways, um, you know, like like my wife, for example, is a GP, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've often kind of um, I've I've come across sort of some of the work, etc., that she does or whatever. And obviously, she wouldn't mm-hmm. ever, you, you know, go against patient confidentiality, etc. Yes, but yes, of course. She, she she showed me like the basic questionnaire that often gets done to sort of by a GP to sort of assess whether someone is clinically depressed or not you know and it's always struck me that actually the role of like the carers or the immediate family or someone that knows that individual very well is quite critical because um and obviously you can fill in on this one but obviously if we're you know you were saying earlier that usually it's got to be kind of persistent uh, or, or or you know this kind of negative uh, mood or the kind of negative way a person is acting has to be persistent for a few weeks etc so whatever mm. kind of the normal kind of interest that that individual has would be quite well known by the family right so you would have thought yeah the role of like the carer or the family or whatever becomes quite critical in helping to kind of diagnose uh when it's you know just someone feeling a bit low versus when it's clinical depression yes there's, there's certainly so if there's you know particular change in in personality or a um a drop off from the usual kind of levels of functioning you know to the be- the best way uh, to know that is is from a kind of observant carer or relative so one one of the the problems i suppose i have as a clinical psychiatrist is that when people come to see me and they tell me about their you know low mood i i see patients essentially for half an hour right or, or maybe an hour and you know, upon that upon that basis, I, I may it's a cross sectional um, uh, point in time, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, upon that basis, I might make a diagnosis, which could be a, a very important or, or serious diagnosis. Um, I may see two, two or three times, but it, it really doesn't fill in for what you know people will know about their loved ones or the people they care for, and they will have been much more observant to these things than than I could pick up yeah. in you know, in my half an hour conversation. Okay. Yeah. No. So that's that. That's good. Um, mm. Okay. Moving on to the next um, condition we we're going to look at was around sort of anxiety. Um, yeah. And again, how does that sort of differ? I suppose from you know from from depression or you know how again it's not something I've thankfully suffered from. So you know how would how would you define anxiety? Okay. So, so um, I suppose depression and anxiety, firstly, they they are often very closely 
associated, right? Um, you know, often people with, with anxiety will also suffer from, from depression or they, they may have anxiety symptoms as part of their depression, but it can be completely separate as well. And so therefore, I'll, I'll tell you a bit about anxiety and then we can talk about the treatments for both conditions yeah. after that because they, they, they kind of similar, they follow the same general type of principles. Sure. So, and anxiety... Um, is, well, we've all felt, felt anxious, isn't it? So, you know, we, we, we feel um, a, a sense of fear or a, fear, uh, a sense of, of dread and we'll have some physical symptoms with this, right? So this is just anxiety, the normal human experience that we have, we, yeah. which is that we may, we may um, feel sweaty, we may, um, you know, uh, we may feel clammy, uh, we may feel a bit shaky, we, we may feel our heart um, rate racing, may feel you know a little bit short of breath right so you know you have the you have the thoughts which are you know the the fear or the anxiety you know about something which may happen right and then you have the physical symptoms which are associated with that and then you know that may that experience may for example cause us to do or not to do certain things so for example you know i might have an anxiety about speaking or coming on this show okay. um, and because I, I have these symptoms, this experience before, you know, phoning in today, so um, therefore I might decide not to go on the show right, right? Okay. so you know that, I mean that's a, that's a normal human experience and, and to be honest, you should feel anxious because um, the, you know in a fight or flight kind of mode in the normal human experience there is a room for every every type of experience, um, which has some kind of protective faculty for us sure. um, in in some evolutionary way. Or um, even I think Hazrat Nasimov would say that every single emotion has been done has been is there to be expressed at a, a particular time. Right. So anxiety in itself is not abnormal, right? Okay. But when it begins to interfere with normal functioning then it becomes abnormal, right? So there can be different levels of that, right? So it can be a situational anxiety. So, for example, um, you know, if I had that concern about public speaking, but my job was being somebody, you know, who's a public speaker, right? Mm -hmm. That would start to interfere with my day-to-day life, right? Or, you know... um, and, you know, then there can be certain phobias as well. So a phobia is that kind of irrational and intense exp- um, experience yeah. to a, a, a stimulus which does not, by stimulus I mean a, a trigger, which should not provoke that, right? Okay. So, for example, the fear of heights, for example, or a, a fear of spiders, you know. So yeah. individuals, even at looking at photographs of a spider, yeah. will kind of jump and be, you know, extremely, extremely worried. And you won't be able to convince them yeah, yeah. that, look, this is only a photograph. Oh, okay. It's not going to bite you. You know, so that, that's what a phobia is, right? So, 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 what, so what are, what's kind of anxiety pinned down to? Is it to do with kind of experiences in your youth? How, you know, is there any one reason why people have anxiety? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different reasons. I mean, so, uh, so phobias, for example, often happen to, due to bad experiences, maybe around the age of three, four, or five. Okay. But, um, you know, there can be a genetic component to this as well. So it, this is expressed in, in certain families. Um, and, and there are certain, you know, medications which can cause you to 
um, feel more anxious, you know. Um, so, for example, people who, who drink alcohol heavily um, may uh, have more of a kind of a preponderance to anxiety oh. disorders. So, 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 so sorry, just yeah. take a step back. The, the interesting thing you said there, I never knew this before. So what, anxiety has like a genetic predisposition as well? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, okay. certainly. I mean, all, so all of kind of human experiences have some kind of genetic yeah. um, predisposition, you know? So depression will have it. Anxiety will have it. Many, many things do. That doesn't mean that our genes determine it. Okay. It just means that our expression of our emotions, you know, there's a genetic component as well as our experience component and how we evaluate that. I think we have to accept that we are a product of, of very many things. Turning to our second clip, we hear from Nasser Sajjad, where we hear about the numerous sayings of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him, that advise us on ways to keep us mentally balanced as well as recognising the responsibility that we all owe towards one another in help dealing with grief, isolation, and ultimately our mental health. You'd be a stranger nowadays. Yes. You know, um, that we're told uh, through the Quran that uh, even if your neighbour is a stranger, hmm. you know, get to know them. Yes. You know, get to know them. And like, um, you have a responsibility towards them, in fact. Yeah. You yeah. know, um, this is something I know that uh, the um, His Holiness, uh, the head of the Ahmadiyya community, Hazrat Mizam Ahmed, yeah, has actually uh, been has emphasised on quite recently yeah. uh, is our responsibility towards our neighbours. And uh, I know there was a message that went out to to our community, you know, as immediately after the Jalsa Salana, which happened uh, over a month ago. Yeah, um, but about um, our responsibility towards our neighbours. Yes. So. Um, th- Having that relationship builds a community in itself, and we know actually through our community. And you know, sometimes on on the show, I tend to mention our community as an example quite a lot. Mm. Um, But we we have forged relationships with other communities and friendships when people may have been maybe not sometimes hostile towards us, but may have been apprehensive towards us, but now have become our friends. Yeah. And that in itself is an example of uh, building up relationships and uh, ensuring that we, we, we get to know people and never are never isolated. You know, the yeah. whole the whole thing about integration, I don't want to go into that too much, but we kind of do that naturally. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's the very essence of yeah. the Muslim community. Yeah, exactly, yeah. We're a community and, you know, again, it's one of those things, and I've mentioned it again on, the, on this show a few times, is I feel quite almost spoiled sort of being an MD in, in that I've had many um, events yeah. and things that I've been able to go through most of my adult life um, and young adult life uh, where I get to meet people on a regular basis people yeah. I haven't seen for a long time yeah. uh, I mean I just mentioned the Jalsa Salana but there's other events that we have where regularly I get to meet old friends and even sort of local friends yeah and it's just I'm all, I'm all spoiled by the fact because I know that other people don't get that's that right. opportunity it's, yeah. you know it's, 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 the, it's the norm within it's the, the norm within, yeah yeah that's right yeah, yeah it's a you shame. Know? but I mean I mean and exactly I mean just for extending that I mean if you think about the, the lifestyle of a Muslim as well even from the, the congregational prayers mm. um, the fact that it's highly encouraged is a, a, a hadith what is known as a saying of the, the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him um, where it was reported that the messenger of Allah said 
that prayer in congregation is 27 times more meritorious than prayer performed individually. So it's very interesting there that if you just kind of almost look as a byproduct of, of going to the mosque. Um, to, I love to the fact that it quantifies it as well. Yeah, yeah, that's quite yeah. interesting yeah, yeah. actually. Um, but once again, it's that opportunity to 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 meet and greet with with one another. Um, yeah, and you're not just kind of you know locked away. You know, in the it's it's almost you know what you just mentioned is almost like the solution to the problem that we were talking mm. about in the first half. Mm. You know, it's the idea of being disconnected and being lonely can immediately be can be resolved. Uh, by going to prayer, congregational prayer, yeah. and meeting someone. And, and, you know, how many times have you done it? We've been to the mosque. You've not just said hello. You've stopped and had a chat as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in that, is, that in itself uh, can resolve a lot of problems. Yeah. I, I mean, there are other anecdotes as well. I mean, just for, you know, taking from another one, for example, where in Islam is highly encouraged to, to convey the, the traditional Islamic greeting, you know, As-salamu alaykum, which itself just means you know, peace and blessing of Allah be upon you. Mm. Uh, a beautiful greeting. It's, it's a, a greeting full of meaning. Mm. Um, and so there was a, there's a, another saying that's been recorded that a, a man once asked the Messenger of Allah, um, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that what is the best thing in Islam? And I think it's very interesting how there are various narrations, there are various uh, hadith, the sayings of the Prophet, which, and it's almost, it's very, it's almost genius how, depending on the questioner, um, whatever he was question, whatever he was asking the Prophet, um, the answer that would that he would give in return, it was it was almost apt for that for that scenario for that mm. person. But and so many times, this type of question has been put, and yet. You know, people may inquire. People may say. People may object and say, "Why? Why was a different answer given to different people?" And yet, the whole of the whole of mankind can benefit from those different answers because it applies to to what may what may have been apparent to that particular questioner. But it's something that there's inherent within that wisdom that applies to to all of us in, in different scenarios, situations. And this particular questioner, where he was, we asked, "What is the best thing in Islam?" And the response that the Prophet gave was. Feeding others and giving the greeting of salam, i.e., peace, to those whom you know and those whom you do not know, and, and you know that it's quite beautiful that just to 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 break that ice is mm. just to extend that greeting. You know, there's no there's no restriction. There's no yeah. kind of you know, and, and this is I know we've talked about this on many many a time before on previous shows, where it's very unfortunate how Islam, and it's I believe it's a recent phenomenon, almost 21st century, because it wasn't like this before. Um, it's kind of painted as this very, how can I say, angry, like warlike. Yeah, yeah. You know, everyone just looking miserable. You yeah. know, I mean, that's just the a, images that yeah, I conjured. It's that's right. I mean, that's, sad. you're right. So that's a recent phenomenon. That's just a, a, a kind of depiction. It seems caricature. Yeah, it? yeah. It's, it's caricature. It seems strange that uh, um, it's happening now. You know, we're talking about you know Islamophobia and mm. you know sort of recent events. But um, sorry. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Sorry, sorry, that came out of nowhere. I'm so sorry. Yeah, um, but the essence, as you mentioned, Mm. is one of actually meeting someone with peace. Mm. You know, and it has been said that, and it's 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 the opposite. It is actually the opposite of what is being depicted in many many circles of kind of anger and hatred. I mean, the problem is there are certain people out there who have have helped paint that picture. Yeah. Uh, by being angry, mm. and uh, but you know, ultimately, you know, the core, and this is where it takes an individual to sort of do the reading. Yeah, uh, the core of it is to um, promote peace mm. and to mm. um, 
sort of give even a stranger wish upon them peace. Yeah. Um, and you know, kind of on a, on a bigger level, on a, on a wider level, mm. um, His Holiness, Hazrat uh, Mirza Ahmed, has been running a peace symposium for years now. Mm. Um, so that in itself, sort of, and, and and all kinds of people are invited there and get to see who we are as a community yeah. and what the message of Islam is. Yeah. The last uh, anecdote that I have here. This was uh, an incident once of a, a famous companion of the Prophet. Uh, Abu Huraira and he had reported this where he said it was reported that once uh, there was a caretaker uh, of, of of the mosque there he used to take care of the mosque and um, when she died the the, the prophet uh, peace be upon him asked inquired about the, 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 the lady and was told that that person had passed away and he had said and the prophet said you know why did you not inform me you know show me their grave and then he went straight to the grave and offered the the, the funeral prayer over it so this takes me on to really the the kind of final segment of this of, of this show around grief, um, isolation, and mental health, um, and really this come just takes us back to an interview that was conducted by the Review of Religions, uh, where they interviewed His Holiness the Khalif of Islam, Hazrat Mirzam Suramad, um, around around this particular th- this this th- this theme of 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 grief, isolation, and mental health. And um, I, I think what I'll do, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of almost skim through the, the, the question and then I've, I've got the answers that were given, that His Holiness gave. And uh, it was interesting how the the, the questioner, um, this was uh, Sayyid Ahmed Safir, who was the, the chief manage, chief editor and manager of Review Religions, where he had the opportunity to, to interview His Holiness. Well, he inquired around um, isolation, um, the link between grief and isolation. And he says... Uh, you know, does isolation always lead to grief? Um, in light of how Islam apparently seems to ask us to search for seclusion in some circumstances, so he's quite interesting questions as to how you know. On, on the one hand, for example, particularly during the month of Ramadan, there's a, yeah. there's a practice of of going into seclusion quite you know blatantly in the last ten days and nights of Ramadan. But um, but on other occasions, it's not deemed um, the the right thing to do. So you know, he inquired around when summer passes away. He's, the grief is the grief is increased through isolation. So how how does Islam deal with this? And he's telling us, um, I have his answer here. He says, uh, you know, he says in terms of isolation, if we take responding to to someone's demise as the example, he says there is psychological. This is a psychological experience that people go through. You know, it's only natural. People want to reduce their grief and they have to deal with it properly by isolating themselves and, and crying over that loss. Um, he says in the past and even sometimes today, people often. Uh, you know, bear this anguish and, and hold back from crying, uh, which in turn has an adverse effect upon them. So he says, so such people are advised to cry to release their sorrows. If you suppress your feelings when you are grieving and you suffer in silence by not expressing it or letting it out, it will affect the heart. So he says, therefore, you should cry and express your remorse. And he quotes the verse. He says, this is why the Holy Quran advises us that what the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, instructed us to do is... Um, he says, God tells us to cry and weep before him. Uh, he, quite, he cites the verse from chapter 13, verse 29. Surely it is in the remembrance of Allah that the hearts can find comfort. And he says, therefore, one should express everything before Allah, before God. When your prayer is accepted, it gives you great satisfaction and release. Um, so, I mean, it's quite interesting that that particular verse, you know, we've, we've, we've touched upon this verse in previous shows. You know, it is in, surely it is in the remembrance of God. It is in the remembrance of Allah that the hearts can find comfort. 
there's almost a universal principle there. Yeah, it is. I mean, not, it's it, not limited to any people or nation. No, and it's, you know, in, in that is, is another answer to loneliness, you know, because if you're, you know, weeping mm. and, in, and to Allah, if you're opening up to God, um, in that you have a friend. Yes. And, you know, in that you have someone you can talk to. And in that you have a way to relieve yourself. So you will never be lonely mm. if you can be in that state. Uh, you you'll always be um, be able to cry it out, you know, or you know whatever you need to do. I, I guess the prerequisite and and, yeah. and stating the obvious here is obviously the belief in God. The belief in God. Yeah, in I mean, that, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I mean, I kind of assume made the natural and, assumption that if you're praying that you, you have that belief. In but God, but so, I was just but I was yeah. so just to cut you off. But but I think this is what's interesting that there may be people that don't. But I've seen it many a time that death is such a phenomenon that, mm. irrespective of of religion, sect, it, you know, it it. It does spark that question within yeah. one's mind. Yeah, why? And they d- How? Yeah, yeah. and yeah. it does. It basically probes them. It pushes them into thinking, but there must be something after this. Yeah, there must yeah. be an afterlife. Yeah. yeah, which begs the question. But then there must be a creator as well. Yeah, and if and, you know, if 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 that's the case, why am I in such grief? Which people, yeah. people may understand. But yeah. in that, um, is is your is you 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 actually by praying, you're actually looking for a solution mm. to your to your grief. And and by praying and opening up to God, you're almost got the solution there and then uh, that God exists and that there is an afterlife and this isn't the end. So you know, in that your grief, you know, it's, it's still going to be there. It hurts very much, and, mm. uh, and His Holiness has mentioned it in the article how mm. it's not easy mm. uh, and it can it's it's a it's difficult time, especially. And I think in the article, I, I can't see. If, I remember when I read through it, mm. um, there was uh, he made the distinct difference between losing sort of uh, a husband or a wife compared to say a child where the grief mm. can differ and be can be deeper yeah um but you know still in that sense you know as long as you're praying mm. uh and and th- i think there's a difference also between loneliness when we were talking about loneliness earlier and um being alone yeah sometimes being alone doesn't necessarily mean you're lonely Mm. If you're praying and you're with God, and uh, I know the article also mentions uh, the, the prophets as well, and and, and they're, they're out of seclusion. Mm. Th- that's not necessarily saying on the one hand, if you're on your own, you're lonely. But on the other hand, why do you have to be on your own to do, yeah. you know, to 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 kind of uh, profess your belief? But that's that's just a kind of a simple distinction between um, being lonely and sort of being on your own uh, isolation for the sake of, you know, uh, sort of getting rid of the noise so that you can pray. Yeah. I, I have another uh, saying of the of the Prophet peace and blessings will be upon him, where he says, um, "Verily, tears are a mercy that God has placed in the essence of His servants." Um, and I think you know it, it. It's true that there's something there is something quite universal about the the act of crying. I guess the, yeah. it, it, it's it, it brings you right down to your basics. The, you, the the it's it's almost revealing what's all inside the heart, essentially. What's in the what's being in the chest. And you're yeah. just revealing all because to your maker in that, in that, in exactly because kind of it's, vul- it's vulnerability, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. It's because once you open up, and you know people may not cry because it shows them as being mm. vulnerable. Yeah. Yet here we are being told that open up and be vulnerable. Yeah. In front of the Creator, you know, when you're praying. Yeah. Um, and in that sense, it's not a weakness; it's almost a strength. Yeah. That that you're able to do that. Uh, so again, you know, you're you won't be alone in doing that. You're yeah. opening up to God. It's a, he, he again quotes. He says, um, uh, His Holiness talks around, around a bit more around this verse, and he says, you know, we should turn to God and beseech His help and support from Him, 
Um, Islam also guides us to increasingly participate in social activities after such traumatic events. Those who are suffering from depression are told by psychiatrists to go and socialize with others, mm-hmm. to get some fresh air and exercise, and to meet people instead of being isolated. Um, so it, it, it's it's just it's part and parcel of our very nature, isn't it? We we are social beings. Yeah, no to, man is an island. I think is the is, yeah. is, is one of the old phrases where you know everything you do affects somebody outside of you in the same way. Yeah. you can't be on your own um, and sort of think that it's just me. Uh, be happy about that yeah. you need to interact we are like I said social creatures we need to be meeting people we need to be talking to people yeah. you know we have a voice we want to be able to communicate and um, going back to what we were saying about uh, the use of tech tech probably doesn't allow you to use your voice mm. you know whereas meeting someone and greeting with someone yeah. it, it almost kind of um, fixes kind of an inherent um belief in you that you need that you need to socialize with someone yeah yeah you know, exactly. it fixes up it fixes up it makes you it's almost like a relief it's like a jigsaw yeah you know it's one piece in the next so the minute you meet someone like-minded person yeah maybe not a like-minded person but the minute you can sound off with someone yeah then uh it's like that's the piece of the jigsaw that was missing in yeah. your life it's just connecting with somebody else well i mean you, you reminds me of, a, of actually a particular saying as well another saying of the prophet where where he once said that you know shake hands um you know and and, and people um, Westerners may f- may see that all the time. It's a very it's very commonplace amongst Muslims of, of you know the shaking of the hands and and, and saying uh, "Assalamu alaikum." And and I think it stems from this uh, saying where, where the Holy Prophet peace and blessings be upon him be upon him says, you know, shake hands for shaking hands r- removes rancor from the hearts. Mm-hmm. So it's almost this. It's interesting how there's this kind of almost inbuilt, uh, you could say, our, our essence. It's, uh, there's something physical about that. That yeah. kind of relieves maybe that stress or, or you know whatever tensions that one is feeling. Yeah, and it's it's it's, um, it's 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 again an example of how the simpler things yeah uh, can actually um, yeah. go a long way to helping those more complex issues that we spoke about earlier regarding loneliness. Yeah, uh, where just meeting someone and shaking their hand yeah. immediately, you know, opens you up to um, just friendships. You know, really, yeah, friendship. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, only for time reasons, I'm afraid. We have to draw to a close. Uh, but before we do, here is an extract taken from a speech delivered uh, by His Holiness, the Caliph of Islam, Hazrat Mr. Masroor Ahmed, to the international charity Humanity First on the 3rd of March 2018, in which he sums up the overarching solution to the problem of loneliness in society. Here is what he has to say. Islam requires us to bandage the wounds of those in pain to remove the anxieties of those who are distressed and to show love and compassion without any desire for recognition or worldly reward. Thus, wherever any person is suffering or facing cruelty, it is your duty to be there to help and support them. At all times, we should utilize our capabilities and skills to the very maximum in order to remove the hardships of such innocent people and to comfort those stricken by grief. We should be there to wipe away the tears of those who have been left bereft heartbroken and vulnerable. 
we should be there to give hope to those who were previously hopeless. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Pathway to Peace. You've been listening to Nasir Sajjad and Kaleem Anwar. Tune in the same time next week for more analysis and commentary on issues affecting modern-day society and remedies Islam has to offer to pave the, to pave the way for a pathway to peace.